0: more wisdom. Amen? All right, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this incredible book of Ecclesiastes, inspired by the Holy Spirit, given through Solomon, that we might have wisdom for living, wisdom for life. Lord, thank you for the honesty of this book. Thank you for the penetrating questions of this book, and thank you for the incredible answers of this book. And we pray in Jesus' name, you will speak to our hearts. We thank you for it. Now, will you breathe a prayer, church, and say, Lord, tonight, speak to my heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell them it's going to be good tonight, and you can be seated. All righty. How many of you had a good week so far? How many had a rough week, but God has seen you through it? Okay, Amen. All right, you notice we're calling it life on the edge because Solomon really was kind of really on the edge of things when the Holy Spirit used him to write this book. Now, this first part, we're just going to give an overview, and we're going to talk about the the cycles of life. Now, I'm going to tell you, this this is a book of wisdom. It's one of the wisdom books. That means we're going to have to think some. It's It's a thinking book. It's a it's, a, it's not a John 3.16. It's, it's going to provoke us to think. He's asking a lot of hard questions. Uh, he's in a, what we would call today, a midlife crisis. But it was really more than that. Solomon is looking back. Well, I'm kind of running ahead of myself. Let me just, let me just go right to what we've got here. The book of Ecclesiastes can be looked at as a journey from skepticism to faith from disillusionment to peace with God. How many of you in here have ever been skeptical about the things of God? Okay, sure. You go through times of questioning, don't you? Doubting times. What's it all about? What does it all mean? Well, that's where he was. And and if you look at Ecclesiastes from chapter 1 through 12, you see Solomon moving from skepticism, doubts, questions, into faith. Matter of fact, the book Doesn't make total sense until we get to the 12th chapter. Okay, until then, we're going to learn a lot of things. Now, it's really an excellent book for teenagers and younger adults because of its honesty in dealing with many of the issues that this age bracket struggles with, particularly in our day. It's an honest and often painful autobiographical sketch of the life of Solomon. Who spent many years in pursuit of life's ultimate meaning, only to find it finally in, in God. Now, we, we like to kind of glamorize and make heroic and all of those things with the people of the Bible, the, the heroes of the Bible. We like to kind of envision them as faultless and perfect and shining in faith at all times. But the fact is, they weren't and they didn't. A lot of them went through real, matter of fact, most of them went through real struggles. Only a couple of them didn't, like Daniel. Drives me nuts. He never had a problem. (laughs) Except when he was throwing the lion's in, and even then he just prayed his way through it. So you don't see him in a crisis, but you see most of the others, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, all of them had crises, and Solomon was no different, as was his father, David. Now, one commentator writes, quote, like an apple tree in the middle of an orange grove stands the book of Ecclesiastes among the other books of the Bible. It's like an apple tree. In other words, it looks out of place. At first glance, it doesn't seem to fit. What place is a book which flaunts the daring assertion Meaningless, meaningless. Vanity, vanity. Meaningless, meaningless. All is meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What is that in Scripture for? How does that reveal the saving work of God? When You've got a man here, supposed to be the wisest man in the world, and he is concluding everything is vanity. Everything is meaningless. What do you do with that? It's like, well, that's all you come up with, and you're the wisest man in the world. Where does that leave me? But that's how the book begins. It's not how it ends. Okay? Along with the book of Job, Ecclesiastes reminds us that God is bigger and our life in this world more unpredictable than we might think. This book, Ecclesiastes, invites us to take a realistic tour of life. A real tour of life. Life in the raw. Life the way that it really is. Life the way you experience it and I experience it. Now, the sightseeing stops are likely going to leave those who enjoy nice, tidy, formulaic answers a bit perplexed, if not frustrated. Now, our guide for this adventure is introduced in verse 1. And here's verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David king in Jerusalem. Now, he is identified by the Hebrew title Koheleth, which means assembling. Translated into the Greek, the word is Ecclesiastes, and hence we have the name of the book Ecclesiastes. Now, the word church in the New Testament is a similar Greek word, ekklesia, An ecclesia means an assembly of called out ones. You know what you are as the church? You are a called out one. Isn't that good? That's what ecclesia or church means a called out one. So you've been called out, but not just called out, but called in. You've been called out of the world and into Christ. So this is not just an assembly of people gathering together on a Wednesday night to learn the Word of God. This is an assembly of people who experience a calling out by the Holy Ghost, you got saved, convicted of sin, saved, brought into Christ, you were called out, and you were brought in. Amen. So say with me, I'm called, I'm called out, and I am in, in. Christ Jesus. Isn't that good news? Now, the title Kohelet suggests a type of office bearer. Uh, thus, the various translations render it the preacher. And I give you the translations that do. So he's either called the preacher or the speaker or the philosopher. And the one used in the NIV, the teacher. It means the same thing. Now, the teacher's message seems particularly aimed at secularists. When you read Ecclesiastes, he's talking to people who are in the same boat as him. People are looking for answers to life. Okay? So he's, he's aiming his message, it seems to me, at secularists, which is why I wish we could preach this book on college campuses. Would love to go there on college campuses. Now, what is a secularist? A secularist is somebody who seeks to find life's meaning outside of a practical faith in God. Okay? I want to find meaning in life without God. That's a secularist. And that is exactly where our culture is headed. Our culture is saying, I don't want God. I I, I don't want to find my meaning in God. Forget all that God stuff. I'm going to find meaning in secularism, in just life without God. But Solomon is going to show us, you can't. Okay? You can't. It's not there. So Ecclesiastes is perfect. For our increasingly secular, godless, and drifting culture where suicides are on the rise and faith is on the wane. Did you know that? When you see faith waning, you will see suicides increasing. When you see secularism taking over a culture, you will see suicides increase. When you see faith take over a culture, you will see suicides decrease. People who commit suicide are saying, essentially, I can't find any meaning anymore. There's no more hope. So they check out. But I say, if you know God, there is always hope where there is God. Okay? With constant echoes of despair, the author explores the grim reality of what he calls life under the sun. You're going to hear that phrase over and over again. Life under the sun, life under the sun. Which means, when he says that, here's what he's saying. Life outside of God's control and God's goodness. When Solomon says, "This is what I've seen under the sun." He's saying when my world view did not include God. I was looking at life through the lens of life without God under the sun. Under the sun, not above the sun, not with heaven in sight, but only in a closed system. Okay? As long as Solomon views life under the sun, he sees things through a closed system. Now, when I say a closed system, I mean, picture yourself in a sort of a, maybe a ball. And the only thing you see is what is inside that ball, not beyond it. It's a closed system. I, I used to go into my, my daughter had goldfish. Well, we had a fish tank and I, and I love this fish tank. I used to go in there at night, turn all the lights off, turn the fish tank light on and watch them just swimming around. And it occurred to me one just one night I was thinking, you know, my mind was running and I was thinking, those fish have no idea that a huge being far more intelligent than them is looking in at them right now. They have no idea. They are in a closed system. They can't perceive anything beyond that aquarium. As far as they're concerned, that aquarium is the whole world. But it's not. As a matter of fact, if I could have gotten in their little fish brain and given them even a glimpse of what was beyond that aquarium, they would have blown up inside of that aquarium. Because... The aquarium was in a huge room that was in a huge house that was in a huge city that was in a bigger state that was in a gigantic world, not to mention the universe beyond it. They could not begin. And that's exactly where we are. We're in a closed, except the word of God tells us by revelation what is out there. But if it weren't for the word of God, we would never know. We would think this is it. But guess what? There is a being of far far higher intelligence than us looking at us right now as we swim around our little aquarium. Now, unless you have revelation that there is something beyond you, you're in a closed system. Okay? Now, when you're looking at life under the sun, you have put God out of the picture, eternity out of the picture, heaven out of the picture, and you are, you are only, this is all there is. This is all there is. That's a closed system. There's no God above. There's no providence at work. There's no redemptive value to what happens on earth. It's all a closed system. And we're about to see how this closed system perspective that Solomon was walking around with for a while ran a major number on him, depressed him, put him in despair, and that's what happens when you don't know God and you say, this is all there is. It creeps me out even thinking about it. I walk around with an open system all day long. I'm always looking up, always looking up, always looking up. Okay? Now, this under the sun perspective is a recipe for depression, despair, and nihilism. Now, what's nihilism? It's the belief that traditional values and beliefs are unfounded and that existence is senseless and useless. Because in nihilism, you're in a closed system. There's nothing beyond us. We are not eternal. We don't have souls. There's nothing beyond the grave. There's no hope of redemption. When you die, you're dead. That's it. And you know what that is? That's nihilism. And when you're a nihilist, you go into self-destructive behavior because you say, if this is all there is, then let's eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. There's no ultimate meaning to anything, so we might as well eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow we die, and that's all there is. So have fun while you can. That's not the way people with an open system look at things. That's not the way that that people who know God look at things. They say, what I do here is going to count there. What I do here brings rewards there. I am living with eternity in mind, not just a few decades on planet Earth. Solomon addresses some of the life's toughest questions. Where can we find satisfaction? Who is really in control? What does it take to be content? Man, I want to be content, Solomon said. How, how do we live wisely? Now, we're going to see the teacher go through, or the preacher go through a list of things he tried in seeking fulfillment. Now, here's some of the things he tried. Career achievements, materialism, alcohol, pleasure, even wisdom or knowledge his conclusion, in a closed system, it's all meaningless. Without God, none of those things brought answers. This is good stuff. I'm telling you, this is good stuff. This is where our culture is right now. It's where our culture is. Interestingly, much of the time, God is left out of the discussion. But when Solomon introduces God Everything changes. Life under the sun becomes life from the hand of God. And you're going to see that towards the end of the book. Chasing after meaning is transformed into the pursuit of God. And it makes all the difference. I'm so thankful to God that I was a, when I was a teenager, he convicted me of sin, drew me to himself, introduced me to the Savior. Because I'm going to tell you, the closed system I was living in was killing me. Because I could see no hope, nowhere, no future, no life, no reason for anything until the closed system opened up and I was introduced to God. Now, this exploration of life's meaninglessness outside of knowing God in the book really becomes an invitation to know Him. In its own unique way, Ecclesiastes is ultimately an introduction to the one, capital O, the one who, quote, came that we might have life abundantly, Jesus Christ himself. Because this book, Ecclesiastes, is going to point us to him at the end. Hallelujah. It highlights the dilemma voiced by Peter, uh, but faced by all of us, when Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Where else is there to go, Lord? What philosophy can I cling to? What, what worldview can I turn to that's going to give me life except you? So let's commence. Right out of the chute, we find the oft-repeated refrain of this book. Verse 2 reads, let's read it together because you're going to hear it a lot. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Everybody say, wow, that encourages me. (laughs) Ecclesiastes mentions vanity 33 times. Vanity means meaningless. It refers to the emptiness of life. In fact, of meaning of any kind. If God is left out and there is no eternity or heaven... There is no meaning, folks. There isn't any meaning. All you have to do is sit down and think about it long enough. Now, the word vanity comes from a Hebrew word meaning, get this, delusion, emptiness, fleeting, fraudulent, futile, nothing, useless, vapor, worthless. Huh. No wonder he was depressed. <laughs> Just pick one of those. Vapor, vapor, all is vapor. Vapor you know or you know fraudulent how's that how's that one how's that for a word describing life fraudulent it's all a theft it's all a lie it's all a cheat in a closed system without god verse 2 introduces the voice of pessimism and disillusionment what's life all about i don't see any value to it it seems transient meaningless and empty now this is the guy who said lord more than anything else i want wisdom And God said, because you asked for wisdom, I'm going to give it to you along with riches and honor and so on and so forth. But he asked for wisdom, and this is where he wound up. And let me give you a little hint as to how he wound up here. He went off into idolatry. He backslid away from God. He he married against God's will a bunch of pagan women who were idolaters. And they led him astray into a life of idolatry that was so dark and abysmal That it's hard to comprehend that Solomon was involved in causing children to pass through the fire unto the god Molech. He descended to that level. And so it's in this backslidden, closed system, without God worldview that he's coming up with all of this. That he's, he's seeing life this way. Next, Solomon focuses on what he considers to be the empty, predictable, cyclical nature of life. And you can almost hear him saying these words. It's also boring. There's nothing new. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 3 to 11. Let me just zip through these verses. He says, what profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? What am I toiling and working for? One generation passes away and another generation comes. You see the cycle there? But the earth abides forever. So on earth, there's these constant cycles of life. People are born, people die. People work, they labor, then they die, and the fruit of their labor goes to somebody else, and the cycle repeats. Verse 5, the sun also rises. Ernest Hemingway grabbed those first four words for the title of one of his books. The sun also rises. And boy, did Ernest Hemingway need Ecclesiastes? And the answer at the end, he blew his brains out. He was living in a closed system. He saw no hope. The sun also rises and the sun goes down, hastens to the place where it arose. Can you hear him yawning? Yeah, 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 yeah. Verse 6, the wind goes toward the south and turns around to the north. The wind whirls about continually and comes again on its circuit. Yawn, yawn. Do you hear the cycles of life? He said, I'm bored. Somebody thrill me. Verse 7 All the rivers run into the sea, and yet the sea is not full. To the place from which the rivers come, there they return again. Cycle, cycle, cycle. He says, Verse 8 All things are full of labor, man cannot express it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. In other words, man never gets enough. He's never satisfied. Verse 8 is saying he's never content. Never enough. I want more, 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 more. If not of this, of that. Verse 9, that which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done. And here he goes again. There's nothing new under the sun. I'm bored. Boo-hoo. That's what he's saying. Because when you're in a closed system without God, you do eventually pick up on these cycles. And life becomes boring, predictable, unfulfilling without God. I cannot think of a more depressing life than that of an atheist. Just can't think of it. Because you're in a totally closed system. There is no hope beyond the grave. There is nothing. You are here by evolutionary uh, progress, and that's all. You are are a meaningless person in an apathetic universe. Ugh. There's no God. There's no hope for eternity. There's no love of God poured in your heart by the Holy Ghost. And here's verse 9: He says, All these cycles, I'm bored. And then in verse 10, is there anything of which it may be said, see, this is new. It's already been in ancient times before us. Haven't we always heard history repeats itself? It's true. Now, you know, hairdos change. The way you dress changes. But guess what? You will notice if you hang around long enough that even styles come back. Oh, my gosh, it's Paisley's again. Or wide whale corduroy. Just wait. Beetle boots will come back. (laughs) Things repeat. There is a cycle. And it becomes monotonous when you have no God. When you have no eternal perspective. Now, verse 11, he says, There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of things that are to come by those who will come after. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying there's no meaning to any of this. Solomon, he's the one who prayed and dedicated the temple, the Solomonic temple. And the power of God fell so hard that everybody in there hit the ground. They couldn't stand in the presence of God. He saw that. He was there. But now he's been lured away. He's gotten lost in the dark of idolatry. He's lost touch with God. He's now in a closed system. And he sees no meaning, no hope. This guy has really drifted. And this is exactly what happens to anybody in our day who backslides away from God. You wake up one day and you say, I don't see any meaning left. I don't see any purpose left. I have no reason to go on. The backslider shall be filled with his own ways, the Bible says. We can backslide just like he did. And we will experience just what he did. There's no new source of happiness that can be discovered under the sun. That's what he's saying. The same tired cycle of petty pleasures, cares, business, study, and wars are repeated over and over and over again. as the same old, same old. Commentator, uh, Commentator Matthew Henry writes these words. Quote, Men's hearts and their corruptions are the same now as in former times. Their desires and pursuits... And complaints are still the same. I mean, there's new inventions. When the light bulb was created, you couldn't look back and say, well, this has been before. Because it hadn't. When the car was created, you couldn't look back and say, well, this has been before. He's not talking about that. He's talking about man's nature, man's failures, man's monotony, The monotony of life without God. There's nothing new under the sun. This should take us from expecting happiness in ourselves, says Matthew Henry, and quicken us to seek eternal blessings. That's what it should do. If you've read the news recently, there there have been a rash of unusually high suicide rates among those who are, according to this world's values, very well off. I read this story last week. They should have been brimming brimming over with happiness and fulfillment. Here's a little, a little quote from the story. The financial world has been rattled by a rash of apparent suicides with some of the best and brightest among the finance workers who have taken their lives since the start of the year, writes the New York Post. And the story went on to say that these people are all in their 20s and low 30s. They are making tons of money. They're on Wall Street. They're successful. They have stuff. They have things. They have material things. They have homes. They have wealth. And yet they're jumping off of buildings. They're checking out. They're ending their life. Why would successful, wealthy, bright people with everything going for them end it all in their late 20s and 30s? Because if you live with an under-the-sun worldview, listen to me, there's no meaning, no higher purpose, no matter how much you gain material. As a matter of fact, if you have an under-the-sun worldview, there's no God, there's no eternal perspective, you just have an under-the-sun worldview, the more money you make, the more you realize it's not doing it for you. And so it increases your despair. Like, wow, I thought if I just got this or obtained that or bought this or had that. That I would be happy. But young, early on, they realize the car, the house, the money, the paycheck, none of this has made me happy. I see no meaning, no purpose. So they jump off buildings. They end it. Next, Solomon informs us that he at first decided to find meaning in knowledge. He said, here's where I'm going to look first to find meaning. I'm going to look in knowledge. In the acquisition of philosophical wisdom, he wondered if meaning, purpose, and fulfillment in life could be attained by scholarly pursuits. He says, I'm going to learn a bunch of stuff. I'm going to become very informed and knowledgeable. And the more knowledge I get, the more I'm going to understand things, and the more fulfillment I'm going to have. that's, That's his assumption. His decision to look for fulfillment in knowledge is found all through history, it's happened from the beginning of time. The Greek philosopher Plato, uh, Plato, Plato. <laughs> the Greek philosopher Plato believed that society could reach a place of perfection only if its kings were philosophers. What, what did Plato believe? He said, "If we can just have some super intelligent, knowledgeable people running our world, society will reach perfection." But, folks. It doesn't work that way. Paul said, knowledge puffeth up. But love edifies. Now, I'm going to tell you, I, I read a lot of history. I, I like history. I found it history intriguing, especially philosophical history. And I'm going to tell you, there's more philosophies scattered throughout man's history than we could list in one whole sitting. If we started from the beginning to end, I just started reading them to you. The various Philosophical approaches men have tried in order to reach fulfillment and happiness. And it never delivers. Yet, Greek and Roman philosophy, Chinese and other Oriental philosophies, German and Western philosophies. The quest, and what is philosophy? Comes from two words Phileo, which is love, one of the words for love. And Sophia, wisdom. So when you say you're a philosopher, you're saying you're a lover of wisdom. But wisdom by itself, without God, does not bring fulfillment. The quest for meaning and purpose through some philosophical system has been one of fallen man's prime pursuits. Now, isn't that what the devil hit Eve with? If you will eat this fruit, Eve, you will know good and evil. God doesn't want you to have that knowledge, Eve. He's cheating you. He's, he's, he's keeping it from you. He's defrauding you. So why did Eve grab that fruit? Because there was a promise of knowledge that would open her understanding and take her to another level in life. But what did it do? She fell. Adam fell and the whole human race fell with them. Listen to Paul's warning. Colossians 2.8. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the uh, tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. You hear that? He says, watch out for philosophy that is not rooted in Jesus Christ because it'll cheat you. And man, I'll tell you, our universities today are cheating those students when it comes to philosophy, because they kick Jesus way out. Jesus has no place. I've, I've been amazed. It's amazed me that colleges and universities will study various philosophers. They love Plato. They love Aristotle. They love to look at Socrates, Thucydides, all these different philosophers throughout history, but they won't touch Jesus, who was the most profound philosopher in the history of the world. I mean, they won't touch him, but nobody understood life like Jesus Christ. So Paul says, watch out, because if you go looking for fulfillment through philosophy that rejects Christ, it's going to cheat you. It's going to defraud you. You're going to end up empty-handed, sand sifting through your fingers, disappointment, disillusion. What was Paul's issue with worldly philosophies? Philosophy that is not rooted in the truth of Jesus Christ will cheat you. It promises something it can't deliver. Listen to what Paul again wrote in 1 Corinthians 1, 20 through 21. He says, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made, read this next part with me, everybody, foolish The wisdom of this world. I don't care what philosophy you're studying. I don't care what your worldview is. If it doesn't include Jesus Christ, God has already made that philosophy foolish. Now, look what he says. Verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom, say the next four words with me. Did not know God. So no worldly philosophy can introduce you to God. Knowledge doesn't introduce you to God. Get your bachelor's, get your master's, get your Ph.D. Ph.D. is an acronym for piled higher and deeper. Because you can learn a lot of stuff, but still make stupid decisions and die lost. Knowledge doesn't save you. Knowledge is not redemptive. Not as good to know certain things. But he's saying your worldview, your philosophical convictions, the way what you believe about life and living, if it doesn't include Jesus Christ, you're going to die lost. It's not going to introduce you to God. Jeremiah said of God's backslidden people, quote, they have rejected the word of the Lord. So what wisdom do they have? Well, I love that. Listen, if you reject God's Word, what wisdom do you have? You don't have wisdom if you reject God's Word. That Bible in your hand is 66 books of divine revelation, knowledge, and wisdom. It's the most precious book in the entire world. It's the only book in the world that didn't come from the world. It came from God. (laughs) And so it, it, it opens our eyes to life beyond the aquarium. And it tells us what's out there that we would never know if it didn't tell us. Cherubim, seraphim, angels, heaven, God, the Lord Jesus, the Holy Spirit, devils, Satan, demons. None of those things we would know about if he didn't tell us. So what wisdom do people have if they reject the word of the Lord? The answer is none. The danger with worldly man-made philosophy is that it doesn't lead a person to God. Who is the ultimate truth? Amen? It can't save you. The preaching of the cross does save you. And this is exactly what Solomon discovered. Listen to his own testimony. Ecclesiastes 1, 12 through 18. I, the preacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. Verse 13, and I set my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven. This burdensome task God has given to the sons of man by which they may be exercised. I have seen all the works that are done where? Under the sun. And indeed, all is vanity and grasping for the wind. Verse 15, what is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be numbered. What did he mean there? I believe he's talking about the hopelessly flawed and crooked nature of mankind. Which by man's own strength and effort cannot be made straight. That which is crooked can't be made straight. Freudian analysis can't make it straight. Psychoanalysis can't make it straight. No worldly mechanism can make you and I straight. Because we were born in sin, shaped in iniquity. So that which is crooked can't be made straight. But guess what? That which is crooked can be redeemed. Amen? The things that are lacking in completeness in our fallen world are too numerous to count. The fall of man into sin flawed and distorted absolutely everything. Verse 16, he says, I communed with my heart saying, look, I have attained greatness and have gained more wisdom than all who were before me in Jerusalem. My heart has understood great wisdom and knowledge. And I set my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is grasping for the wind. Here, here's what Solomon is saying. In spite of all his excelling in wisdom and intellectual superiority, and this guy was brilliant. His IQ was off the charts. There was virtually no area of study possible to mankind he didn't delve into. But in spite of all that, he's saying the fulfillment and the happiness he had hoped for remained out of reach. This didn't make me happy. It didn't fulfill me. Finding happiness in knowledge was as futile as trying to grab the wind in his fist. I couldn't find fulfillment in knowledge. Knowledge without God. Knowledge in a closed system. Knowledge under the sun. He goes on to say, verse 18... For in much wisdom is much grief. Well, that's encouraging. <laughs> How many of you want to be wise again tonight? In, in much wisdom is much grief. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Let me tell you what that means. There is something to be said for ignorant bliss. There is. There is something to be said for ignorant bliss. Why would I say that? Because with wisdom and knowledge come insights into the true nature of our fallen world, we see the inevitable approach of God's judgment. I see it coming every day. Now, I don't, I don't mean to sound negative, or I'm not trying to be a downer, but I'm telling you, the approaching judgment of God is so clear to me. He must judge; he has to, and it's coming. And when you have wisdom from Scripture, when when you are out of the aquarium and and you've you've met God through Jesus Christ you begin to get understanding about these things and it brings some grief it brings grief because you look at people and you say i know where you're headed if you don't turn and that gives me grief if, if i don't know anything i'm just ha ah, ha i'm just cooking along all right life is cool let's get a surfboard and just go but if you have wisdom and knowledge Outside the closed system, you know God, it brings grief. We perceive those who have wisdom, the enormity of man's sinful condition. The knowledgeable man is able to look back over history and observe the continual destructive cycles of man's existence, and he knows they're going to happen yet again. With wisdom and knowledge comes some grief. But keep in mind that when he said that, this is... This is particularly true of the person that is looking at things, at life, through the crushing lens of the under the sun worldview. If that's all you see, then yeah, wisdom and knowledge can really bring some grief. But the wise man who also knows the Lord can turn with joy and hope to the fact that God is sovereign over all things, and history is in his hands, and Jesus is near even at the door, and God is in charge of history. And one day soon he's going to wrap it all up and the millennial reign of Christ is going to come in. And the lion will lay down with the lamb and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and we will know war no more. When you know that, you have hope. Summing it all up, we see in chapter 1 that Solomon did not find a redemptive answer to the meaningless nature of life without God. Now, next time, we're going to do chapter 2, and we're going to see his search continue as he looks for meaning in hedonistic pleasure, great accomplishments, and even again, knowledge. And he doesn't find it in any of them. Can we stand up together tonight? You know, that night I was looking at the aquarium, I got to thinking, oh, about every week, I would plunged my hand in that aquarium, moved things around, cleaned it out, fixed things up, and pulled the hand back out. And I got to thinking, I had some fish in there that were believers and some that weren't. And, and the ones, some of them were going around saying, they said, I saw a hand. I saw the hand. And the others would say, you didn't see any hand. There's no hand out there. No, I saw the hand. It, it, it even brushed up against me. No, you didn't see any hand. I did see the hand, and it moved things around. I'm a believer in the hand. I mean, I got really carried away that night. But those of us that have been touched by the hand, we know there's a hand. We know there's a hand. All right. now here's, here's what we need to take away tonight. Knowledge for knowledge's sake will not lead you to God. There's no philosophy in life that will lead you to God if it doesn't include Christ. And true philosophy has Christ at the center. Amen? Father, we thank you right now for the Word of God. Thank you, Lord, for the honesty of Solomon, the transparency of Solomon as he shared with us, his struggles, his skepticism, the consequences of his backsliding. And, Lord, we thank you that as we follow him through this journey, we're going to arrive at God. Thank you for it, Lord. Now I want you to just pray a prayer with me tonight, church, and say, Lord, tonight, Help my knowledge to be centered in you. Help my wisdom to revolve around you. And thank you for giving me discernment to reject any philosophy, any worldview that does not include Jesus Christ in his name. Can we lift our hands to him right now and just lead us in a...